And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I suspect that many of you know how much fun uh, Chris and I had putting together the last podcast regarding the best-in-class recommendations uh, for ETFs. Uh, And even if you're not an ETF investor yourself, I hope that you will forward that podcast to friends, maybe younger people who don't have the amount of money to access and get the diversification through uh, regular mutual funds. I'm sure you won't be surprised to find out that we've gotten a lot of questions after uh, that podcast. So uh, we'll just let the dust settle, uh, have a chance to um, get more questions so that we'll have a chance, we'll have an opportunity either in the newsletter or on a podcast uh, to respond. And, and I'll respond to some of them in a way in today's podcast because today I'm going to get caught up on uh, Q&As. Now when I say I'm going to get caught up, that that was a lie. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to do about 10 of the recent questions. I've got a huge stack, and uh, I, um, I, I, t- if I don't answer it, ask again, ask again, uh, and, um, and maybe it'll just happen to fit just at the right time. And I'm sorry I don't get back to all of you. Uh, here's uh, a question from Charles. And uh, he says, uh, Mr. Merriman, I continue to enjoy your podcasts and have learned a lot over the years. Uh, Your philosophy has shaped my thinking for two decades. And I just have to stop right there. That is a great feeling to know, whether they follow our advice or not, that uh, people have followed our work for a long period of time. And uh, later on, Uh, In this podcast, we'll talk about some young people who are just getting started because their parents were following uh, our work. Uh, Interestingly, I, for the first time, had a conversation with a financial planner in a social situation that made me question our approach and wonder if you would comment. Uh, And I, by the way, I'm When he says our approach, I think he's including me in in that teamwork. He says, I'm 66 married and have a 50-50 portfolio made up of index funds. And I assume 50 equities and 50 fixed income. I mentioned this to the gentleman with whom I was speaking, and he was highly critical. He said that a much better approach, since no one makes money from bonds would be to put everything into high-quality, dividend-paying stocks and REITs. If we could live off the 3% or so dividend combined with Social Security, which we could, then it really wouldn't matter if the portfolio fluctuated wildly, since the dividend would likely not change, and the potential for long-term growth would be far greater than the 50-50 allocation. Uh, boy, I mean, it's a it's it's a great question, and I'm sure it's a question a lot of people have. Uh, I, I find that with politics and uh, and people who know a lot about politics, just as people who know a lot about investing, by the time we're retired or close to retirement, uh, we typically know a lot and have found something that works for us. 
And so the question is, would this strategy be appropriate for you? Let's start there. Um, when I was an advisor, I always, first and foremost, there are two things I wanted to know. I wanted to figure out what rate of return do you need? Not the rate of return you want. What rate of return do you need? And then I, I, I wanted to find out what your risk tolerance was. What's the most, uh, and I would, I would use a year, although I would also look at longer periods of time as well, but how much are you willing to lose in a year? And what I found was that most of the people I spoke with, and by the way, uh, maybe if they were old hands at this and, and had tons of experience and had high risk tolerance, they wouldn't even be talking to me. So it doesn't surprise me that the people I met with uh, tended to be a, a little more conservative because certainly 100% in equities, I don't care what equities, is high risk. And what I found is that it's rare that once we reach 66, that we want to lose more than 20 to 25% of the value of our portfolio. Now, if I told you, if I told you that I thought a strategy would make 30% a year for 30 years, because that happened to me. I made 30% a year for 30 years on a relatively small investment that created a big return, but the downside risk was 100% loss. And there was no question that it was highly likely to lose 100%. And, and, and so when you're 66, at, at that point, I don't think you're ready to lose 100%. Well, this fellow's not talking about losing 100%. Certainly, he's talking about an all-equity portfolio, much like you might see at Vanguard. Vanguard has the Equity Income Fund, V-E-I-P-X, I believe. V-E-I-P-X, Equity Income Fund. And... It's a fund that has a 2.9% dividend payout, according to Morningstar. And by the way, they have a REIT. The REIT is V-G-S-I-X. V is in Vanguard. G, S as in Sam, I-X. It has a 3.9% dividend payout. Now, that would certainly... meet your 3% dividend payout need to meet your cost of living plus your Social Security. And that part's great. But the reason I sold uh, the investment that made 30% for 30 years, the reason I sold it was because I no longer wanted to take the risk of losing 50% or more of my investment. And I don't care if you're uh, in in a dividend-paying company or you're in a non-dividend-paying company. When we have severe bear markets, those stocks can go down 50% or more. Now, I'm not opposed to losing 50% on part of my portfolio. In fact, You're not opposed to losing 50% because you've got half of your money in equities and that those equity funds have some likelihood 
Remember, both Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett said if you're not willing to lose half your money, you shouldn't be in stocks. And they didn't say dividend-paying stocks or growth stocks. They Stocks in general, they can all go down 50%. Now, I don't have any problem knowing that part of my portfolio can go down 50%. But uh, could it go down 50% and stay down for a long period of time? Would that bother me? Well, I could afford it. I've oversaved, and I could afford it. But I don't need to take that kind of risk anymore. And so I stay 50% in bonds, not because I couldn't make more money being in stocks. In fact, I, I have always had a certain level of admiration for people who have the risk tolerance. Forget about dividends. They just have the risk tolerance to be all equities all the time, all their life, period. And they take phenomenal risk, but they don't care because they believe even if they lost 75% of the value of their portfolio, that they'd be okay. And the reason they'd probably be okay is because they've had stocks all the time for maybe 50 years. So they've built up a phenomenal value. But see, many people I run into have not built up that huge, uh, luxurious bonus of, of having five or ten times the money you need. So I'm a little more sensitive when somebody says, uh, are you nuts? Why don't you just put your money into dividend-paying stocks? I'm not sure they really get it. They live in a different world from a lot of other investors. And I'm not saying it's a bad world. I, In fact, I've made the point here. I have admiration for people who have been able to put their money in stocks and stay the course for all of their life because they are likely to end up with a great big pool of money for somebody else. You can look at our tables. Look at our distribution tables if you haven't seen them. Go to, go to uh, Best Advice and look under Distributions. I think the one you'd see right now says 2018. In a few weeks, we'll come out with 2019. But you can see, if you look down the the, the column that says all equities, and you retired in 1970, and you kept all your money in equities, and you took out, I don't care, took out 3, 4, 5%, and by the time you passed on, it was about a 48-year period from 19 or 49, from 19, uh, uh, 1970 through uh, 2017. It's going to be through 2018 shortly. But the point is, is that you'd have tons and tons of money. And some people did that. But that doesn't mean it's right for you. But if that's what you want... Take a, take a look at, at the Equity Income Fund at Vanguard. And take a look at the REIT uh, Fund at Vanguard. They're very fine funds. Question number two from Brandon. He says, uh, Paul, I'm writing you to get your opinion on a recent article on Market Watch in which the author agrees with your opinion on target date funds but recommends a rather odd long-term strategy for investors. 
I'm in my mid-30s and just recently moved my Vanguard 401k into their self-directed option to get exposure uh, to equities. I was previously fully invested in a target date fund. And he's looking to be in equities, and he wants to get access to a small cap value. He notes that uh, especially. He says, I appreciate all your work, your website, your podcast, and really enjoy and agree with your advice and outlooks. And then he says, the author recommends a balanced 50-50 or 60-40 approach for investors as their data showed those outperformed TDF's target date funds in their limited analysis. It seems to me some of these lower lows that 100% equities produced in the past would benefit uh, those who are working class investors as they continue to dollar cost average. And I would surmise that an all-equity portfolio would have outperformed the target date funds in their examples had they included uh, the contributions over time. Uh, now, let me, let me just break in right there. Trying to do an analysis over time is really hard to do because what time that you happen to look at is going to color your outcome and maybe color your belief system and uh, give you a, either a false sense of security or a sense of hopelessness. Because as I've talked many times before, if you looked at the period from 1975 to 1999 where the S&P 500 compounded at uh, 17%, you can see, and oh, by the way, a small cap value I think was 22% over that particular 25-year run. But you can see how you would look if that had been the period that you were judging versus the period that followed that from 2000 to through 2018, where the compound rate of return of the S&P 500 was under six. Now, if I, if I look at uh, the work that Chris Pedersen did, and I, I love this work because um, I think he does a great job. He replicates the way that Vanguard has built their target date fund. It's not the way they were building them in 1970. But it is the way that that uh, if you use what they're showing, they would do for your money today. And they show you in their glide path exactly what they would do from for you from, in essence, birth to death. But if... But if if you followed their glide path and you go back to 1970 and use those asset classes that they use, you can build what how you would have done. You can add the fixed income when they would have added it. Now, even that's going to be misleading because what do we know about fixed income during part of that period of time? Fixed, I remember, I got a five-year CD. I think it was about 1982. I got a five-year CD that paid 16%. So how, you know, how meaningful is that whole study? Well, it isn't meaningful by itself, but you can use it 
to compare other strategies. So you can go back over that same period of time and you can do things with small cap value and large cap value, etc. And that's what, what uh, Chris did. So here's what I know. I know in his work from 1970 through 2017, creating this lookalike of the Vanguard target date fund. And I think he even included uh, a small, I think he used uh, 14 or 15 basis points as the expense ratio. But the compound rate of return was about 10.1. Now that is a phenomenal rate of return. Uh, When I years ago uh, tried to estimate what kind of a return that you would likely get Uh, with a target date fund over a lifetime, I came up with about an uh, 8.8% compound rate of return. Now, I suspect that difference uh, comes over this period of time because equities were a little higher than normal, uh, and that's one thing. And the second thing is that the bonds paid a whale of a big uh, return over that period of time. So, Given the time period, that, that that actually does make some sense, 10.1%. Now, if you added, if you added, and by the way, what that means, of course, is you started the port, you started your 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 investment being 10% in bonds, 90% in uh, uh, in in uh, f- equities, and then over the years, as Vanguard does, they added uh, more bonds. You really hit the bonds at about age 40. They start adding more than that 10%. Then what we did was we simply added 10% in small cap value, and that return went up to about 11.1. So it was actually what would uh, be considered a small change to the portfolio, but small cap value, as we know, during that period of time, did better than the S&P 500. In fact, uh, it did better than the S&P 500 in almost every 40-year period. And then we also ran the strategy that we call two funds for life, and that is a combination of uh, using a formula that I'll share with you here in a second, uh, you, what you did was you, you, you added a small cap value uh, to the portfolio based on a formula which was 1.5 times your age. So if you were 20 years old, that number would be 30, and that would be the percentage you would have in the target date fund with 70% in small cap value. And over the years, as you adjust that, because as you age, you're going to own more and more of the target date fund. And at age 66, you're out of the small cap value business, and you're totally in a target date fund. Now, you might say, whoa, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that means you're going to have a lot more small cap value. Well, it turns out uh, that because you continue to reduce the amount of small cap value, uh, the, the impact isn't as, as great as you might expect, but it ends up at about 116 is the uh, compound rate of return uh, of that strategy. Now, if you're really into digging more into the 
the Two Funds for Life, then go to twofundsforlife.com. But the, the point that, that I want to make is that there are, in uh, fact, a, a lot of ways to slice and dice returns. And uh, I know the article that you're talking about. I know the gentleman who uh, wrote the article, and uh, he understands this. But the fact is, people won't sit and read an article that, that, that goes into all the details that you could look at in order to figure out what are the assumptions. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, one of the things I like about the work that Chris Pedersen did on the two funds for life, if you go look at the returns, he gives you the average uh, return over a very long period of time of um, something like a thousand different examples. But he also shows you the very best of times and the very worst of times because nobody can know what kind of time you're going to go through. And just to finish the comment uh, from this question, uh, he also adds something here that's important. He also seems to allude to human behavior as a reason for staying out of 100% equities as pulling money out after a crash is obviously devastating versus staying the course. And, uh, and so uh, I, I totally agree uh, with your comment, Brandon, uh, about the, the, the study is not taking into consideration the impact of dollar cost averaging. And as we know, dollar cost averaging gives us an opportunity to put, in essence, buy more shares when the market is down. But it also assumes the investor will be there to buy those shares. And as the author suggests, not all people are going to be there. And uh, and I will talk in just a second about uh, uh, in an answer to another question, and I'll, I'll expand a little bit on this idea of finding a kind of a middle-of-the-road course to take that uh, might allow some investors to stay the course longer. Another question here uh, from Dan. Uh, thank you for your research and teaching in investments for the masses, particularly to the young ones. My millennial children are investing in your two funds for life portfolio. Uh, I read uh, Brian Livingston's article on target date funds versus Vanguard fund, uh, a Vanguard fund VBIAX. By the way, that is a balanced uh, fund and a, a 60-40 balanced fund. And, um, and in fact, uh, uh, the, the previous question was, I believe, referring to the our article from Brian as well, because I got a number of, of questions uh, after that article. Uh, first of all, let me talk about the 60-40 strategy. In 2005, I wrote an article entitled, One Portfolio for Life. And the assumption was that I had met a young person and after asking a handful of questions, uh, concluded this person is not going to stay the course during a traditional uh, bear market. As a matter of fact, this person would not stay the course in a target date fund <laughs> through a traditional uh, bear market. 
And the question was, what could you do? What could you expose that investor to that they would pick up a lot of the value of equities but have enough fixed income that it would it would keep them in the process during the worst of times, which was really what Brian uh, was talking about in this idea of using the balanced fund. Now, um, what I concluded was probably a 60-40, uh, 60% equity, 40% fixed income uh, would create the, uh, the best shot. It would give them a very good piece of the upside. And again, depending on the market and how, and, and how well the market did, would dictate, for the most part, how well the balanced fund would do. If you had a huge equity market, then the balanced fund's not going to do as well as somebody who is committed to a big position in equities. But it would pick up a lot of it. And what we found was at the end of the 50 years uh, and in, in 2004, that a 60% S&P 500 and 40% five-year intermediate bond compounded at 9.6%. Now, the S&P 500 for that same period compounded at 10.9%. So you gave up uh, over 1% in return. And we've, I've talked many times about the impact of a half a percent. So 1% is a big deal. But, but if the investor can stay the course and not throw in the towel and go to cash when the bear, big bear market comes, that could be a home run. The 9.6% would have been a fine return. But we took it one step further. We said, okay, but what about the investor who had read the work of Dr. Fama and Dr. French? By the way, uh, 50 years prior to 2004, Dr. Fama and Dr. French hadn't written their work. So nobody knew about it, but we know about it today. It's like nobody knew about the S&P 500 prior to 1957 because there was no S&P 500. And yet we talk about the returns of the S&P 500 all the way back to 1926. It's hypothetical as the studies about small cap and, and large cap value and small cap land and small cap value, hypothetical going back there, but the academics have done that homework. And here's what we found using the homework that the academics had done. If we build a portfolio of four funds, four equity funds, and use that instead of the S&P 500, and if a quarter of that portfolio, equity portfolio, uh, was the S&P 500, a quarter large cap value, a quarter small cap blend, a quarter small cap value, that the return of 60-40 using the four equity asset classes instead of just the S&P 500. And remember, the 60-40 with the S&P 500 compounded at 9.6. Instead, with the four equity asset classes, 11.4.
So you reduce the volatility a, a, a whole bunch from the S&P 500, and yet you were able to achieve a return higher than the S&P 500. So this is a case, and yes, it's hypothetical, this is a case where one could have had their cake and eaten it as well. And uh, what's fascinating to me, and, and Rich and I are going to do an article. We're going to take that old article that was written in 2005, and we're going to update the returns through 2018. So you'll see the returns from 2005 through 2018. And remember what we knew about the previous 50 years, that the S&P made 10.9, that the 60-40 with the S&P as the 60 made 9.6, and the four-fund strategy 11.4. And I wouldn't be surprised if somebody saw that study and said, hey, this looks like a pretty good deal. Well, you're going to find out in that article how good a deal it was or wasn't. Question number four uh, has to do with the spread between the bid and the ask when you buy and sell stocks and, of course, an ETF trades just like a stock, uh, and how that compares to the spread between the bid and ask when you buy and sell uh, a mutual fund. And the, and the question that, uh, the, that the reader has asked, or listener, um, he says, um, I am using M1 to invest in your ultimate portfolio, and uh, is the buy, the, the bid spread? slash ask spread, something that could eat into my profits using this platform. Up until now, I've been using mutual funds where there is no spread at the end of the trading day. Uh, So, this is an important consideration. If somebody has got tons of money, or a lot of money, and they have the ability to build a broadly diversified portfolio using mutual funds and can get access to the asset classes that we would like you to have in your portfolio, then you are better off with the mutual funds than you are the ETF because you are not only able to trade commission-free, and of course, as you know, at M1 and at Vanguard and Fidelity and Schwab, it's now possible to trade ETFs commission-free. But you're still stuck with the spread between the bid and ask. And Chris Pedersen, who put together the portfolio, that's one of the things he was sensitive about, was to pick ETFs that the spread is relatively uh, normal and that there's decent liquidity. But that spread is going to cost you. Uh, When you, again, when you buy and sell a mutual fund, what they do is, one, you can only do that at the end of the day, and they create one price, which is in essence the the, the mean between the bid and the ask. It's, it's more complex than that, but you can think of it that way so that whether you're buying or selling, 
the transaction is at the very same price. So that is an advantage with mutual funds. Now, ETFs can have some advantages in terms of taxes. ETFs can have a huge advantage. Talk about M1. M1, you can open an account with $100, and you can trade a portfolio that, that if you listen to the podcast that, that, that Chris Pedersen and I did, that the return competes with the return of dimensional funds, a family of funds only available through advisors who all have to charge some fee to do it. Now, I just think that's a marvelous thing for young investors, but yes, there is a price, and the price is going to be that spread between the bid and ask. It's not much, but it's something. Question number five. If I follow your advice, will I have an overlap in the ownership of some of the companies? In other words, will I have some companies in more than one of the ETFs uh, that I hold? And the answer is yes. For example, if you own, whether it's the total market index or the S&P 500, you will have some similarities between that index and the large cap value index. The same would be true of the large cap blend international and the large cap value international. The same will be true with the small cap blend and the small cap value. Yes, there will be some overlap. And also, as I've discussed in the past, there will be times when you will see that we have picked a small cap value ETF or small cap value mutual fund. And when you go to Morningstar and you look at the style box, you're going to see that there are, in fact, some mid cap stocks in that small cap value fund. And that's one of the challenges with mutual funds and ETFs. It's very difficult to get a pure, truly pure asset class as we would like it. Uh, number six, I have seen uh, several different uh, recommendations of different large cap value ETFs in your portfolios. What is your favorite large cap ETF? Well, uh, I suspect that many of you uh, did not happen to, to listen to the uh, uh, to the podcast with Chris about the changes in the ETF recommendations, particularly the best in class. And as it turns out, all of the best in class ETFs are also available uh, at, uh, at at Vanguard on a commission free basis, so that you can do commission free work with these ETFs at M one or you can do that at Vanguard as well. But the one in the large cap value uh, asset class that uh, Chris has selected is the Invesco S&P 500 Pure uh, uh, ETF. It's R, P as in Paul, V as in Victor. Number seven. My question concerns, this is from Kevin, the ultimate buy and hold portfolio. You have many different portfolios. Some have as few as seven 
uh, funds or ETFs recommended. Uh, and yet in M1, there are some 15 holdings. Uh, in reviewing them, I see there are three that are treasuries or bonds. Can you help me understand what the others are providing? And what the others are providing is access to all of the asset classes we would like you to own, in, in essence, small percentages of the portfolio. There is no mutual fund that I could recommend to you that includes all of these particular asset classes, especially in the percentages we would like you to have them. Now, the good news is that uh, in the work that Chris has recently done in upgrading uh, the portfolio, we actually now have it down to uh, with the best-in-class ETFs, if that's what you're going to be using at M1. Uh, there are now 10 equity positions and, uh, and three in the fixed income arena. So uh, it's become a little less complicated, uh, particularly complicated for people who are, the, are doing this on their own and not doing it automatically through M1. Uh, question number eight. If you had the opportunity to use Vanguard to compile this portfolio or M1, which would be the best to use? Well, that's, that's a, uh, it's not complicated, but it kind of depends on the situation of the investor. If the person has a small amount of money to invest, then they're going to have trouble buying the full shares uh, at Vanguard to put together the appropriate balance of asset classes that we're after. I suspect there will be a time when Vanguard will allow partial shares of ETFs because if M1 can do it, I know that Vanguard can do it if they want to. And they do it with mutual funds, so again, I'm sure that they're going to figure out a way to do that. Uh, but for, for the time being, if you're going to trade at Vanguard, you have to trade in a full one whole share of an ETF. And some of those could, could go for $40 or $50. Some could go for $100 or $120. So um, it, 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 with, if you've only got a few hundred dollars to invest, it isn't going to work out at Vanguard. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of people like M1 because everything is automated. You get a dividend and you got over $10 to reinvest. It automatically gets reinvested. Uh, some new money is put into the account. It automatically uh, is invested in the asset allocation that you have designated. So there are, uh, there are some conveniences of the M1 that the smaller investor is really going to like. Uh, and, and, I, and I think even the larger investor may appreciate it, but the larger investor may be able to do most of this with mutual funds rather than ETFs. So it's, uh, it's the answer, as with so many things, is it depends. Oh, and I, and I missed another question that was under this uh, number eight. And, and he asked, does the expense fee listed by M1, uh, currently 0.18, represent the total expense, or would I have to account for additional expenses uh, 
including expenses inside of the ETFs. Uh, those expenses that we have shown in our, and by the way, with the new recommendations that Chris has just come out with, the expense uh, goes up about eight basis points. So you, you'll want to read his report uh, that is now out and, uh, uh, or listen to the podcast so you understand why he picked some uh, ETFs that has slightly higher expenses. But those expenses are the underlying expenses of those ETFs. And, and M1 does not, other than for special things you might want M1 to do, uh, does not have a, a commission a cost uh, to do a trade. Number nine, I am ready to dump my active managers and smarten up and start investing in portfolio number eight. And you may remember portfolio number eight in the ultimate buy and hold strategy uh, is a, uh, an all-value portfolio. I don't want to make any mistakes. Where on the web do I find the symbols of what I should be buying? Or can you send me the symbols, the ticker uh, symbols? Uh, and so... Uh, Lee, what you need to do is simply go to paulmerriman.com, go to the ETFs on the, 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 the main bar, and you click on ETFs, that will take you to a choice between best in class, uh, and uh, you will see, the and you scroll down under best in class, and you'll get to the all value uh, all of the time portfolios if you're going to use the ETFs. Number 10. I loved, and he put the loved in caps, your podcast and article about turning uh, $3,000 into $50 million and would like to execute this strategy for my kids 15, 13, and 9, but I have a couple of questions. One question, before they have income, you say to invest $3,000 in an ETF or a mutual fund that holds small cap value stocks. Would this be in a regular brokerage account in my name? It could be in their name. It would be legal to be in their name with you as a custodian. But when they turn to the age of majority, whatever that might be in your state, they then have direct access to that money. And that may be okay with you. But if you want to maintain control of that, you can do it in your name, and that would then allow you to release that money over time. Remember, that money is going to end up going into a, uh, 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 into a Roth IRA, hopefully, for them. In fact, that goes on to your second question, you then instruct the reader to make deposits into the child's Roth IRA account once they have taxable income. And then your question is, and it's a legitimate, won't I incur capital gains tax on the original $3,000 investment? And the answer is yes. It would be a long-term capital gains, I would assume, so it won't cost you much, and it's not on a huge investment, but the answer is yes. And then your third question here is, if I do incur capital gains tax, would you suggest using the money from that account 
to pay the taxes. Otherwise, I would have to pay the taxes from my personal account. Well, when I read that, I, I really... I really had to laugh, or, or at least giggle a little bit, because uh, you're obviously making a big commitment, and it may be that you're going to be putting in a lot more than $3,000, and maybe that's the reason you're concerned about paying the taxes. Now, what you could do, yes, you could pay the taxes uh, out of the account. It's your money. Or you could say to the kids, I just want you to know, not only am I making, helping you turn whatever amount of money you're putting into to whatever the appropriate amount of money it should grow to, given that these kids are not just being born, you could say that, but I'm even doing something beyond that. I am going to right now be paying $200 in taxes in order to fund this for you. Now, what I want you to know, and you're not going to believe this, but in 50 years, at 10% compound rate of return, that $200 is going to be worth... Wait a minute. Don't tell them what it's going to be worth. Let them guess. But it, the, the number, if you want me to figure it out for you, is about $23,500. So uh, they could take out 10% a year, $2,500 a year plus as it continues to grow, I hope. And remember the generosity that you made the $200 investment, and maybe they'll just learn something about the impact of compound interest. I've got time to read one quick email and then to ask a huge favor from you. Uh, Scott writes, uh, Just another note to tell you how well I've enjoyed your investing advice. My wife and I, She's now retired. I'm about 18 months away. Have continued to do well with a mix of low-cost mutual funds and target date funds. When the market hiccuped last fall, I even increased my 401k contributions, so our last 12-month investment return remains positive due to the kick we've had since the 2019 started. Anyway, what I'm most happy about is that my daughter and son-in-law are also following your teachings and are doing extremely well as young professionals with young children. Staying the course, investing for the long term, living below your means, and not listening to the noise out there is the sauce of success. And uh, I was curious uh, when I got this uh, note from Scott, because what I wanted to know uh, was how he got uh, these young people uh, to, uh, to pay attention to the things that I've been talking about and writing about. So I emailed him and asked him what, what the steps were. He said he sent them uh, the e-books, uh, the free e-books. Now, I don't, he said downloaded them. I don't know whether he, he bought them off of, uh, uh, off of uh, Amazon or whether he just sent them the links uh, to the, the free books, but they're free at paulmerriman.com. And then he said, I begged them to read them. <laughs> and they are short reads. Now, I don't know if he sent them the 101 investment decisions guaranteed to change their financial future. That's one of the books. Or he sent them first-time investor, grow and protect your money. That's the second 
and maybe he sent the third one, I'm not sure, entitled Get Smart or Get Screwed, How to Select the Best and Get the Most from Your Investment Advisor. But maybe if you've got some young people in the family that you think will benefit from this information, maybe the place to start is with something they're used to doing, and that is just reading a, a, a book. And a short book is even better than a long book, I suspect. That's very, very basic. And then if they want to dig deeper into our work, that would be great. But when I hear that somebody has been successful in getting their kids to learn this information, I get very excited and I want to know how you might have done it. What did you do to get your child or grandchild to take the time to learn this information? And by the way, I don't care whether it's my work or Larry Swedro, whatever it might be, I would be happy to tell others about it. So drop me an email, paul at paulmerriman.com. Let me know how did you get your young folks in your family or people at work to dig deep enough to find out there's something we're spending time learning. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you soon. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.